Reagents used in assaying. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. From a textbook of assaying for the use of those connected with mines by C. and J. J. Beringer, published in 1904. Chapter 6 Reagents, Acids, etc. Acetic acid, C2H4O2, specific gravity 1.044, containing 33% real acid. An organic acid forming a class of salts, acetates, which are for the most part soluble in water, and which on ignition leave the oxide or carbonate of the metal. It is almost always used in those cases where mineral acids are objectionable. To convert, for example, a solution of a substance in hydrochloric acid into a solution of the same in acetic acid, alkali should be added in excess, and then acetic acid. Many compounds are insoluble in acetic acid, which are soluble in mineral acids, such as ferric phosphate, ferric arsenate, zinc sulphate, zinc sulphide, calcium oxalate, etc., so that the use of acetic acid is valuable in some separations. The commercial acid is strong enough for most purposes, and is used without dilution. Aquaregia is a mixture of one part by measure of nitric acid and three parts of hydrochloric acid. The acids react forming what is practically a solution of chlorine. The mixture is best made when wanted, and is chiefly used for the solution of gold and platinum, and for opening up sulphides. When solutions in aqua regia are evaporated, chlorides are left. Bromine, Br. Specific gravity 3.0. Practically pure bromine. It is a heavy, reddish-brown liquid and very volatile. It boils at 60 degrees centigrade, and consequently must be kept in a cool place. It gives off brown, irritating vapours, which render its use very objectionable. Generally, it answers the same purpose as aqua regia, and is employed where the addition of nitric acid to a solution has to be specially avoided. It is also used for dissolving metals only from ores which contain metallic oxides, not desired in the solution. Bromine water is simply bromine shaken up with water till no more is dissolved. Carbonic acid, CO2. A heavy gas, somewhat soluble in water, it is mainly used for providing an atmosphere in which substances may be dissolved, titrated, etc., without fear of oxidation. It is also used in titrating arsenic assays with iodine, when a feeble acid is required to prevent the absorption of iodine by the alkaline carbonate. It is prepared when wanted in solution by adding a gram or so of bicarbonate of soda, and then as much acid as will decompose the bicarbonate mentioned. When a quantity of the gas is wanted, it is prepared in an apparatus like that used for sulphuretted hydrogen, by acting on fragments of marble or limestone with dilute hydrochloric acid. Citric acid C6H807.H2O is an organic acid which occurs in colourless crystals, soluble in less than their weight of water. The solution must be freshly prepared, as it gets mouldy when kept. It forms a comparatively unimportant class of salts, citrates. It is used in the determination of phosphoric acid, chiefly for the purpose of preventing the precipitation of phosphates of iron and alumina by ammonia, and in a few similar cases. The commercial crystals are used. They should be free from sulphuric acid and leave no ash on ignition. Hydrochloric acid, HCl, in water. Specific gravity 1.16. It contains 32% of hydrogen chloride. It is sometimes called muriatic acid, 
and when impure, spirit of salt. The acid solution should be colourless, and free from arsenic, iron, and sulphuric acid. It forms an important family of salts, the chlorides. It is the best acid for dissolving metallic oxides and carbonates, and is always used by the assayer when oxidising agents are to be avoided. The acid is used without dilution, when no directions are expressly given to dilute it. It has no action on the following metals, gold, platinum, arsenic, and mercury. It very slightly attacks antimony, bismuth, lead, silver, and copper. Tin is more soluble in it, but with difficulty, whilst iron, zinc, nickel, cobalt, cadmium, and aluminium easily dissolve with evolution of hydrogen, and the formation of the lower chloride, if the metal forms more than one class of salts. All the metallic oxides, except a few of the native and rarer oxides, are dissolved by it with the formation of chlorides of the metal and water. Dilute hydrochloric acid is made by diluting the strong acid with an equal volume of water. This is used for dissolving precipitates obtained in the general course of analysis, and the more easily soluble metals. Hydrofluoric acid. A solution in water may be purchased in gutta-percha or lead bottles. It is of variable strength and doubtful purity. It must always be examined quantitatively for the residue left on evaporation. It is used occasionally for the examination of silicates. It attacks silica, forming fluoride of silicon, which is a gas. When the introduction of another base will not interfere with the assay, the substance may be mixed in the platinum dish with fluoride of ammonium, or of potassium, or of calcium, and hydrochloric acid, instead of treating it with the commercial acid. It is only required in special work. The fumes and acid are dangerous, and, of course, glass or porcelain vessels cannot be used with it. Iodine I. This can be obtained in commerce quite pure, and is often used for standardizing. It is very slightly soluble in water, but readily dissolves in potassium iodide solution. It closely resembles chlorine and bromine in its properties, and can be used for dissolving metals without, at the same time, attacking any oxide which may be present. It is chiefly used as an oxidizing agent in volumetric work, being sharp in its reactions, and easily detected in minute quantities. It cannot be used in alkaline solutions, since it reacts with the hydrates, and even with the carbonates, to form iodides and iodates. Iodine is soluble in alcohol. Nitric acid, HNO3, specific gravity 1.42, boiling point 121 degrees centigrade, contains 70% by weight of hydrogen nitrate. It is convenient to remember that one cc of this contains one gram of real acid, it combines the properties of an acid and of an oxidizing agent. One cc contains 0.76 gram of oxygen, most of which is very loosely held, and easily given up to metals and other oxidizable substances. Consequently, it will dissolve many metals, etc., upon which hydrochloric acid has no action. All sulphides, that of mercury excepted, are attacked by it, and for the most part rendered soluble. It has no action on gold or platinum, and very little on aluminium. The strong acid at the ordinary temperature does not act on iron or tin, and in most cases it acts better when diluted. Some nitrates being insoluble in nitric acid form a protecting coat to the metal, which hinders further action. Where the strong acid does act, the action is very violent, so that generally it is better to use the dilute acid. When iron has been immersed in strong nitric acid, it not only remains unacted on, but assumes a passive state, so that if, after being wiped, it is then placed in the dilute acid, it will not dissolve. Tin and antimony are converted into insoluble oxides. 
while other metals, with the exception of those already mentioned, dissolve as nitrates. During the solution of the metal, red fumes are given off, which mainly consist of nitrogen peroxide. The solution is often coloured brown or green because of dissolved oxides of nitrogen, which must be got rid of by boiling. Generally, some ammonium nitrate is formed, especially in the cases of zinc, iron and tin, when these are acted on by cold dilute acid. Sulphur, phosphorus and arsenic are converted into sulphuric, phosphoric and arsenic acids, respectively, when boiled with the strong acid. Dilute nitric acid. Dilute one volume of the strong acid with two of water. Oxalic acid. H2C2O4.2H2O. This is an organic acid in colourless crystals. It forms a family of salts, the oxalates. It is used in standardising, being a crystallised and permanent acid. It can be readily weighed. It is also used in separations, many of the oxalates being insoluble. For general use, make a 10% solution. Use the commercially pure acid. On ignition, the acid should leave no residue. Sulfuretted hydrogen, hydrosulfuric acid, SH2, a gas largely used in assaying, since by its action it allows of the metals being conveniently classed into groups. It is soluble in water, this liquid dissolving at the ordinary temperature about three times its volume of the gas. The solution is only useful for testing. In separations, a current of the gas must always be used. It is best prepared in an apparatus like that shown in figure 32, by acting on ferrous sulphide with dilute hydrochloric acid. When iron has to be subsequently determined in the assay solution, the gas should be washed by bubbling it through water in the smaller bottle, but for most purposes washing can be dispensed with. The gas is very objectionable and operations with it must be carried out in a cupboard with a good draught. When the precipitation has been completed, the apparatus should always be washed out. The effect of this acid on solutions of the metals is to form sulphides. All the metallic sulphides are insoluble in water, but some are soluble in alkaline and some acid solutions. If sulphuretted hydrogen is passed through an acid solution containing the metals till no further precipitation takes place, a precipitate will be formed containing sulphides insoluble in the acid. On filtering, adding ammonia to render the filtrate alkaline and again passing the gas, a further precipitate will be obtained consisting of sulphides insoluble in an alkaline solution but not precipitable in an acid one. The filtrate may also contain sulphides not precipitable in an acid solution which are soluble in an alkaline one. These will be thrown down on neutralizing. Again, the metals precipitated in the acid solution form sulphides which may be divided into groups, the one consisting of those which are soluble, and the other of those which are not soluble, in alkalis. This classification is shown in the following summary. 1. Precipitable in an acid solution. A. Soluble in alkalis. Sulphides of arsenic, antimony, tin, gold, platinum, iridium, molybdenum, tellurium, and selenium b. Insoluble in alkalis. Sulphides of silver, lead, mercury, bismuth, copper, cadmium, palladium, rhodium, osmium, and ruthenium. 2. Not precipitated in an acid solution, but thrown down in an alkaline one. Sulphides of manganese, zinc, iron, nickel, copper, indium, tellurium, and gallium. These can again be divided into those which are dissolved by dilute acids and those which are not. 3. 
not precipitated in an acid or alkaline solution, but thrown down on neutralizing the latter. Sulphides of vanadium and tungsten. Sulfuretted hydrogen is a strong reducing agent. Ferric salts are thereby quickly reduced to ferrous. In hot solutions, nitric acid is decomposed. These changes are marked by a precipitation of sulphur, and the student must be careful to pass the gas sufficiently long, and not be too hasty in concluding that no sulphide will form because it does not at once make its appearance. The best indication that it has been passed long enough is the smell of the gas in the solution after shaking. Sulfurous acid, H2SO3. The reagent used may be regarded as a saturated solution of sulphur dioxide in water. It may be purchased, and keeps for a long time. It may be made by heating copper with sulfuric acid, and passing the gas formed into water. The heat should be withdrawn when the gas is coming off freely. It is used as a reducing agent, and should not be diluted. Sulfuric acid, H2SO4, specific gravity 1.84, containing 96% of real acid H2SO4. This acid forms insoluble sulphates with salts of lead, strontium, and barium. It has a high boiling point, 290 degrees centigrade, and when evaporated with salts of the more volatile acids, converts them into sulphates. When nitrates or chlorides are objectionable in a solution, evaporation with sulfuric acid removes them. In working with this acid, caution is necessary, since on mixing with water great heat is evolved and if either the acid or water has been previously heated, a serious accident may result. In diluting the acid, it should be poured into cold water. Glass vessels containing boiling sulfuric acid should be handled as little as possible, and should not be cooled under the tap. The action of diluted sulfuric acid on metals closely resembles that of dilute hydrochloric acid. Magnesium, aluminium, iron, zinc, nickel, cobalt, manganese, and cadmium dissolve with evolution of hydrogen in the cold acid, or when warmed. The action of hot and strong sulfuric acid is altogether different. It acts as an oxidizing agent, and is itself reduced to sulfur dioxide, or even to sulfur. The following metals are attacked in this way. Copper, bismuth, mercury, silver, antimony, tin, and lead. Gold, platinum, and arsenic are not affected. This property is made use of in parting silver from gold and platinum. Metallic sulphides are similarly attacked, but this method of opening up minerals has the disadvantage of giving rise to the formation of anhydrous sulphates of iron, etc., which are not readily dissolved when afterwards diluted. The use of sulphuric acid in assaying is, for these reasons, to be avoided. Its chief use is as a drying agent, since it has a strong affinity for water. Air under a bell jar may be kept dry by means of a basin of sulphuric acid, and gases bubbled through it are freed from water vapour. Dilute sulphuric acid. This is made by diluting one volume of the strong acid with four of water. Tartaric acid. C4H6O6. A crystallized organic acid soluble in less than its own weight of water, or in less than three parts of alcohol. It is used for the same purpose as citric acid is. The solution is made when required. Bases, salts, etc. Alcohol, C6H6O. Commercial alcohol of specific gravity 0.838. It contains 84% by weight of alcohol. It should burn with a non-luminous flame and leave no residue. It is used for washing precipitates where water is inapplicable and for facilitating drying. Ammonia, NH3. Commercial ammonia, 
a solution having a specific gravity of 0.88 to 0.89 and containing about 33% of ammonia. It is used as an alkali, more commonly than soda or potash, since an excess of it is easily removed by boiling. The salts of ammonium formed by it may be removed by igniting or by evaporating in a porcelain dish with an excess of nitric acid. It differs in a marked way from soda or potash in its solvent action on the oxides or hydrates of the metals. Salts of the following metals are soluble in an ammoniacal solution in the presence of ammonic chloride. Copper, cadmium, silver, nickel, cobalt, manganese, zinc, magnesium, sodium, potassium, and the alkaline earths. Dilute ammonia is made by diluting one volume of commercial ammonia with two of water. The dilute ammonia is always used, but in assays for copper a stronger solution, one of strong ammonia to one of water, is required. Ammonic carbonate, AM2CO3. Reader's note, AM being an abbreviation for NH4, end reader's note, is prepared by dissolving one part of the commercial sesquicarbonate of ammonia in four parts of water and adding one part of strong ammonia. Ammonic carbonate, HAMCO3, is prepared by saturating a solution of the sesquicarbonate of ammonia with carbon dioxide. Ammonic chloride, AMCL, use the commercial salt in a 20% solution in water. The salt should leave no residue on ignition. Ammonic molybdate, the solution is prepared as follows. Dissolve 100 grams of the powdered commercial salt in 200 cc of dilute ammonia and pour the solution in a slow stream into 750 cc of dilute nitric acid. Make up to 1 litre and allow the mixture to settle before using. It is used for the purpose of separating phosphoric acid from bases and from other acids, and also as a test for phosphates and arsenates. In using this solution, the substance must be dissolved in nitric acid and a considerable excess of the reagent added. 50 cc is sufficient to precipitate 0.1 gram P2O5. Reader's note, phosphorus pentoxide. End reader's note. When the phosphate is in excess, no precipitate will be got. The precipitate is phosphomolybdate of ammonia. Ammonic nitrate, AMNO3, is used in the separation of phosphoric acid by the molybdate method, and occasionally for destroying organic matter. It is soluble in less than its own weight of water. The solution is made when wanted. Ammonic oxalate, AM2C2O4.2H2O, is used chiefly for the separation of lime. The solution is made by dissolving 15 grams of the salt in 100 cc of water. Ammonic sulphide may be purchased in the state of a strong solution. It is yellow and contains the disulphide S2Am2. It serves the same purpose as is obtained by passing a current of sulfuretted hydrogen through an ammoniacal solution, but has the disadvantage of loading the solution with sulphur, which is precipitated when the solution is subsequently acidified. It is useful for dissolving the lower sulphide of tin, SNS. Baric carbonate BaCO3, is sometimes used for precipitating the weaker bases. It should be prepared when wanted by precipitating a solution of baric chloride with ammonic carbonate and washing. The moist precipitate is used without drying. Baric chloride, BaCl2.2H2O, a crystallized salt, soluble in two and a half parts of water. It is used for the detection and separation of sulfates. Make a 10% solution. Black flux, 
A mixture of finely divided carbon with carbonate of potash, or with carbonates of potash and soda. It is prepared by heating tartar or shell salt until no more combustible gas is given off. One gram will reduce about two grams of lead from litharge. Borax, Na2B4O7.10H2O. It is chiefly used as a flux in dry assaying, as already described. It is also used in testing before the blowpipe. Many metallic oxides impart a characteristic colour to a bead of borax in which they have been fused. Calcium chloride. The crystallised salt is CaCl2.6H2O. Dried at 200 degrees centigrade, it becomes CaCl2.2H2O, and when fused it becomes dehydrated. The fused salt, broken up into small lumps, is used for drying gases. It combines with water, giving off much heat, and dissolves in a little more than its own weight of water. Strong solutions may be used in baths in which temperatures above the boiling point of water are required. One part of the salt and two of water gives a solution boiling at 112 degrees, and a solution of two parts of the salt in one of water boils at 158 degrees. The salt is very little used as a reagent. Calcium chloride, or fluorspar, CaF2. The mineral is used as a flux in dry assaying. It renders slags which are thick from the presence of phosphates, etc., very fluid. Mixed with hydrochloric acid, it may sometimes be used instead of hydrofluoric acid. Calcium carbonate, CaCO3. It is precipitated in a pure state by ammonic carbonate from a solution of calcium chloride. It is used for standardizing. In the impure state, as marble or limestone, it is used in the preparation of carbonic acid. Calcium hydrate, or lime water. This is used in testing for carbon dioxide and in estimating the amount of that gas present in air. It may be made by slaking quicklime and digesting the slaked lime with water. 100 cc of water at 15 degrees centigrade dissolves 0.1368 grams of the hydrate, CaH2O2, and hot water dissolves still less. Milk of lime is slaked lime suspended in water. Cobalt nitrate, CO, brackets NO3, close brackets twice, dot 6H2O, is used in a 10% solution for the detection of oxides of zinc, aluminium, etc., on ignition with which it forms characteristically coloured compounds. Copper, Cu. Pure copper, as obtained by electrolysis, can be purchased. This only should be used. Copper oxide, CuO. It occurs as a black, heavy and gritty powder, and is used for the oxidation of carbon and hydrogen in organic substances. It should be ignited and cooled out of contact with air just before using, since it is hygroscopic. Oxide of copper which has been used may be again utilized after calcination. Copper sulphate, CuSO4.5H2O, contains 25.4% of copper. It is used in the outer cell of a Daniel battery. Commercial salt is used for this purpose. The recrystallized and pure salt is used for preparing the anhydrous sulphate, which is used for detecting moisture in gases. For this purpose, it is dried at 200 degrees centigrade till no trace of green or blue color remains. It must be prepared when wanted. It may be conveniently used in the form of pumice stone saturated with a solution of the salt and dried. Traces of moisture develop a green color. Ferric chloride, Fe2Cl6. When crystallized, Fe2Cl6.6H2O. The solution is prepared as described under iron. The commercial salt contains arsenic 
and since the chief use of ferric chloride is for the determination of this substance, it must be purified. Ferric sulphate, Fe2, open brackets, SO4, close brackets, times 3, is a yellowish-white deliquescent salt. It is used as an indicator in volumetric silver assaying, and for the separation of iodine from bromine. It may be purchased as iron alum, AM2, Fe2, open brackets, SO4, close brackets, times 4.24H2O, but it is best prepared by adding strong sulphuric acid to ferric hydrate in equivalent proportions. Use it as a solution containing 2 or 3 percent of iron. Ferrous sulphate, FeSO4.7H2O. The granulated form is best and can be purchased pure. It is used for standardizing. It keeps better in crystals than in solution. It is readily soluble in water, but the solution is best made with the help of a little free acid. As a reagent, use a 10% solution. The crystals should be clear bluish-green. If their color is dark green, brown, or blue, they should be rejected. Ferrous sulfide, FES, is used for the preparation of sulfuretted hydrogen. It may be purchased and broken in small lumps, nut size, for use. Fusion mixture, K2CO3.Na2CO3, is a mixture of potassic and sodic carbonates in the proportions of 13 of the former to 10 of the latter by weight. It is hygroscopic. A mixture of the bicarbonates is better, being purer and less apt to get damp. Gallic acid, C7H6O5.H2O, is an organic acid occurring as a pale fawn-coloured crystalline powder, soluble in 100 parts of cold water, or in 3 parts of boiling water. It is used for the determination of antimony. A 10% solution in warm water is made when required. Hydrogen, H, is a gas. It is obtained by acting on zinc with dilute hydrochloric or sulphuric acid. It is used as a reducing agent, and for providing an atmosphere free from oxygen. It reduces metallic oxides at a high temperature. It must be freed from water, and special precautions should be taken to prevent an admixture with air. It is generally required in a current which can be continued for an hour or more without interruption. The preparation can be conveniently carried out in the apparatus shown, figure 33. A quart bottle is half filled with sheet zinc and connected with bulbs filled with sulphuric acid and with a calcium chloride tube. The last is connected with the apparatus through which the gas has to be passed. Dilute hydrochloric acid mixed with a few cubic centimetres, 20 cc to 1 pint, of stannous chloride solution to fix any dissolved oxygen is placed in the funnel and let into the bottle by opening the stopcock when required. Care must be taken to let the hydrogen escape for some time before starting the reduction. Gold, AU. Gold obtained by cupelling and parting is for most purposes sufficiently pure. It is best kept in the shape of foil. When the purer metal is required, gold should be dissolved in aqua regia, the solution evaporated to a paste, diluted, allowed to stand, and filtered. The filtered solution is acidified with hydrochloric acid, warmed, and precipitated with sodium sulphite. The precipitate is collected, washed, and fused on charcoal. Iron, Fe. The soft wire, thin, is used for standardizing. Rods are used in dry assays as a desulphurizing agent. Steel must not be used, since it is not pure, and contains a variable amount of iron. Lead, Pb. Granulated lead or lead foil is used in the dry assay for silver and gold, and in the preparation of lead salts. 
It can be obtained very pure, but always contains more or less silver, one or two milligrams in one hundred grams. The amount of silver it contains must be determined and recorded. Lead acetate, PB, open brackets, C2H3O2, close brackets, times two, dot three H2O, is used as a test, specially for the detection and estimation of sulfuretted hydrogen. Prepare a 10% solution for use. Lead nitrate, PB, open brackets, NO3, close brackets, times two, can be purchased pure. It is used for standardizing. Lead dioxide, PBO2, occurs as a dark brown powder. It is used as an oxidizing agent and for absorbing sulfurous oxide. It can be prepared by digesting red lead with warm dilute nitric acid, washing and drying the residue. Lithage, PBO. It can be purchased as a yellow heavy powder. It is used in dry assaying as a flux, as a desulfurizing agent, and also as a source of lead. It always contains some silver, the amount of which must be determined. Litmus. This is an organic colouring matter which is turned red by acids and blue by alkalis. For ordinary purposes it is best used as litmus paper, which may be purchased in small books. A solution is prepared by digesting 15 or 20 grams of the commercial litmus in 100 cc of water on the water bath. After being allowed to settle, it is filtered and made just faintly red with acetic acid. Then there is added a drop or two of a solution of soda and 10 cc of alcohol. It should be kept in a loosely covered bottle. Magnesia, MGO. It may be purchased as calcined magnesia. It is used for making magnesia mixture and should be kept in a corked, wide-mouthed bottle. Magnesia mixture. Dissolve 22 grams of magnesia in about a quarter of a litre of dilute hydrochloric acid, avoiding excess. Add 5 grams of magnesia, boil and filter. Add 300 grams of ammonic chloride and 250 cc of strong ammonia, and dilute with water to 2 litres. It should be kept in a stoppered Winchester. Magnesium sulphate, MgSO4.7H2O. It can be purchased very pure and is occasionally used as a standard salt. Manganese dioxide, MnO2. It is used in the preparation of chlorine. The commercial article is not pure, but is sufficiently so for this purpose. Marble, CaCO3. Fragments of the white crystalline variety only should be used. It is used as a source of lime and of carbon dioxide. Mercury, Hg. This can be purchased pure. It should have a bright surface, flow without a tail, and leave no residue on ignition. It is used as a standard for amalgamation and as a confining liquid in gas analysis. Mercuric chloride, HgCl2, may be purchased pure. Make a 5% solution in water. It is used for destroying an excess of stannous chloride, for removing sulfuretted hydrogen from solution, and as a test for stannous salts. Microcosmic salt, HAMNAPO4.H2O. When fused, NaPO3 is formed. It is used in testing for metallic oxides and silica before the blowpipe. The crystals are sometimes used as a standard for phosphoric acid. Nestler's solution, mode of preparation, Dissolve 35 grams of potassium iodide in 100 cc of water. Dissolve 17 grams of mercuric chloride in 300 cc of water. And pour this solution into that of the iodide till a permanent precipitate is produced. Make up to 1 litre with a 20% solution of potash. Add mercuric chloride till a precipitate is again formed. Allow to settle and decant. 
It is used for detecting ammonia. Nitre. This is potassium nitrate. Platinum chloride. 2HCl.PTCl4. In the crystallized form it has 6H2O. It may be made as follows. Take 5 grams of clean platinum scrap and dissolve in a flask at a gentle heat in 50 cc of hydrochloric acid with the occasional addition of some nitric acid. Evaporate to a paste and then dissolve in 100 cc of water. It is used for separating and determining potassium. Phenolphthalene is an organic compound used as an indicator, more especially in determining the weaker acids. It cannot be used in the presence of ammonia. Dissolve half a gram in a hundred cc of dilute alcohol. Potassium bicarbonate, KHCO3. It may be purchased pure. On ignition it leaves the carbonate, K2CO3, which may be used as a standard. Potassium cyanide, KCN. It is used in the dry assay as a reducing agent. The commercial salt is very impure. Purchase that sold as potassium cyanide, open brackets, gold, close brackets. Potassium bichromate, K2Cr2O7. It may be purchased nearly pure. It is used as an oxidizing agent for determining iron and as a test solution. For this last purpose, a 10% solution is prepared. Potassium chlorate, KClO3 can be purchased pure. It is used with hydrochloric acid as a substitute for aqua regia. Potassium ferrocyanide K4FE-CN times 6.3H2O or yellow prussiate of potash is used as a test, as an indicator, and for the determination of zinc. Make a 5% solution. Potassium ferricyanide K6 Fe2 open brackets Cn close brackets times 12 or red prussiate of potash is used for testing and as an indicator. Make a 5% solution when wanted as it decomposes on keeping. Potassium hydrate KHO. Purchase that purified with alcohol. It is an alkali and is used for absorbing carbonic acid, etc. Potassium iodide KI. It may be purchased nearly pure. It is used as a test and for dissolving iodine. It should be used in a 10% solution freshly made. The solution decomposes on exposure to light with separation of iodine. Potassium nitrate, KNO3, can be purchased pure. It is used in the dry way as an oxidizing agent. It is very fusible. It decomposes at a low temperature into potassium nitrite, KNO2, and free oxygen and at a higher temperature leaves potash, K2O. It oxidizes sulphur and carbon with explosive violence. This action may be moderated by mixing the nitre with carbonate of soda, common salt, or some other inert body. Potassium nitrite, KNO2. The commercial article is not pure, but is sufficiently so for the purpose required. A saturated solution is used in the separation of cobalt. The solution is made when wanted. Potassium permanganate, KMNO4. This salt may be purchased sufficiently pure. It is much used as an oxidizing agent. Potassium bisulfate, KHSO4, is used as a dry reagent for opening up minerals. It fuses, and at a much higher temperature, is converted into potassium sulfate with loss of sulfuric acid. Potassium sulfocyanate, KCNS, is used for the detection and determination of traces of ferric iron as also in the separation of silver and copper from some of the other metals.
Make a 10% solution. It should show no colour on the addition of hydrochloric acid. Red lead, PB3O4, is used in the dry assay as a flux instead of litharge, from which it differs in containing a little more oxygen. When acted on by nitric acid, a brown residue of lead dioxide is left, nitrate of lead going into solution. Like litharge, it always carries silver, about 2 milligrams in 100 grams. Silver, AG. Pure silver in foil is required as a standard. It may be prepared as follows. Dissolve scrap silver in dilute nitric acid and decant off any residue. Dilute the solution with hot water and add hydrochloric acid until there is no further precipitate. Stir. Allow the precipitate to settle. Decant and wash. Dry the precipitate, mix it with twice its bulk of carbonate of soda, and fuse the mixture in a crucible until tranquil. Clean the button, and roll or hammer it into foil. Sodium acetate, NaC2H3O2.3H2O Crystals may be purchased sufficiently pure. Make a 20% solution in water. It is used for replacing mineral acids by acetic acid. Sodium acetate and acetic acid a solution is used in the determination of phosphates and arsenates. 100 grams of the salt is dissolved in 500 cc of acetic acid and diluted with water to 1 litre. Sodium bicarbonate, NaHCO3, is used as a flux in dry methods. On ignition it leaves the carbonate, Na2CO3, which is used as a standard reagent. Make a 20% solution of the carbonate for use. It should be free from chlorides or sulphates, or if impure, the amount of impurities must be determined. Sodium hydrate, NaHO. It may be purchased in sticks, which should be kept in a well-corked bottle. It is sometimes called caustic soda. It is a strong alkali. It is used for neutralizing acid solutions and for separations where ammonia is unsuitable. Make a 5% solution for use. Sodium hyposulfite. Na2S2O3.5H2O. It may be purchased pure. It is generally known as hypo. It is used as a standard. Sodium sulphite, Na2SO3.7H2O, is used as a reducing agent. Sodium phosphate, Na2HPO4.12H2O. The crystals may be purchased pure, but they effloresce in dry air with loss of water. It is used as a standard and for precipitating magnesia, etc. Make a 10% solution. Stannous chloride, SNCl2-2H2O. The crystals are best purchased. If kept dry and free from air, they are fairly permanent. A solution is made by dissolving 20 grams in 10 cc of hydrochloric acid and diluting to 1 litre. The solution is not permanent. It is a strong reducing agent and is chiefly used in solution for this purpose. Tin, SN. Grain tin should be purchased. It is not pure, but contains 99.5% of the metal. The chief impurity is copper. It can be used as a standard. When acted on with hot hydrochloric acid, it slowly dissolves, more rapidly in contact with platinum, and forms stannous chloride. Uranium acetate, UO2, open brackets, C2H3O2, close brackets, times 2, dot H2O. It is best purchased in crystals. The solution is used for the determination of phosphates and arsenates. A solution of 3% strength is occasionally used as an indicator. Uranium nitrate, UO2, open brackets, NO3, close brackets, times 2, 6H2O. 
This salt is very soluble in water, and is sometimes used instead of the acetate, which is somewhat difficult to dissolve. Water, H2O. Spring or well water is sufficiently pure for most purposes. 100 cc will leave a residue of from 10 to 30 milligrams, so that where a salt has to be dissolved out, evaporated and weighed, it should be replaced by distilled water. Rain water, melted snow, etc., always leave less residue than spring water, but in other respects they are often dirtier. Distilled water is best prepared in the office, a glass or tin condenser being used. Zinc, Zn. It is sold in a granulated form or in sticks. It generally contains over 1% of lead with a little iron and arsenic. It is used for separating metals from their solutions and generally as a reducing agent. For the preparation of hydrogen and in most other cases, scrap sheet zinc may be used. Zinc oxide, ZNO, the commercial oxide sometimes contains carbonate. Zinc sulphate, ZNSO4.7H2O. It is occasionally used as a standard and can be purchased nearly pure. End of Reagents, Salts, etc. From a Textbook of Assaying by C. and J. J. Beringer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Reinforced Concrete by Edward Godfrey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Deborah Lynn. Reader's Note. This extract is the beginning of the text, and contains the author's paper only. For soporific purposes, I retained the list of men whose discussion follows this extract. End of Reader's Note. American Society of Civil Engineers Instituted 1852 Transactions Paper number 1169 Some Mooted Questions in Reinforced Concrete Design Footnote A By Edward Godfrey M. A.M. S.O.C. C. E. With discussion by Messrs. Joseph Wright, S. Bent Russell, J. R. Worcester, L. J. Mench, Walter W. Clifford, J. C. Meem, George H. Myers, Edwin Thatcher, C. A. P. Turner, Paul Chapman, E. P. Goodrich, Alban H. Byer, John C. Ostrup, Harry F. Porter, John Stephen Sewell, Sanford E. Thompson, and Edward Godfrey. Not many years ago, physicians had certain rules and practices by which they were guided as to when and where to bleed a patient in order to relieve or cure him. What of those rules and practices today? If they were logical, why have they been abandoned? 
It is the purpose of this paper to show that reinforced concrete engineers have certain rules and practices which are no more logical than those governing the bloodletting of former days. If the writer fails in this, by reason of the more weighty arguments on the other side of the questions he propounds, he will at least have brought out good reasons which will stand the test of logic, for the rules and practices which he proposes to condemn, and which at the present time are quite lacking in the voluminous literature on this comparatively new subject. Destructive criticism has recently been decried in an editorial in an engineering journal. Some kinds of destructive criticism are of the highest benefit. When it succeeds in destroying error, it is reconstructive. No reform was ever accomplished without it, and no reformer ever existed who was not a destructive critic. If showing up errors and faults is destructive criticism, we cannot have too much of it. In fact, we cannot advance without it. If engineering practice is to be purged of its inconsistencies and absurdities, it will never be done by dwelling on its excellencies. Reinforced concrete engineering has fairly leaped into prominence and apparently into full growth, but it still wears some of its swaddling bands. Some of the garments, which it borrowed from sister forms of construction in its short infancy, still cling to it, and while these were perhaps the best makeshifts under the circumstances, they fit badly and should be discarded. It is some of these misfits and absurdities which the writer would like to bring prominently before the engineering profession. Illustration Figure 1 The first point to which attention is called is illustrated in Figure 1. It concerns sharp bends in reinforcing rods in concrete. Figure 1 shows a reinforced concrete design, one held out in nearly all books on the subject as a model. The reinforcing rod is bent up at a sharp angle, and then may or may not be bent again and run parallel with the top of the beam. At the bend is a condition which resembles that of a hog chain or truss rod around a queen post. The reinforcing rod is the hog chain or the truss rod. Where is the queen post? Suppose this rod has a section of one square inch and an inclination of sixty degrees with the horizontal, and that its unit stress is sixteen thousand pounds per square inch. The forces A and B are then sixteen thousand pounds. The force C must also be sixteen thousand pounds. What is to take this force C of sixteen thousand pounds? There is nothing but concrete. At five hundred pounds per square inch, this force would require an area of 32 square inches. Will some advocate of this type of design please state where this area can be found? It must of necessity be in contact with the rod, and for structural reasons, because of the lack of stiffness in the rod, it would have to be close to the point of bend. If analogy to the queen post fails so completely because of the almost complete absence of the post, why should not this borrowed garment be discarded? If this same rod be given a gentle curve of a radius twenty or thirty times the diameter of the rod, the side unit pressure will be from one-twentieth to one-thirtieth of the unit stress on the steel. 
this being the case, and being a simple principle of mechanics which ought to be thoroughly understood, it is astounding that engineers should perpetrate the gross error of making a sharp bend in a reinforcing rod under stress. The second point to which attention is called may also be illustrated by figure 1. The rod marked 3 is also like the truss rod of a queen post truss in appearance, because it ends over the support, and has the same shape. But the analogy ends with appearance, for the function of a truss rod in a queen post truss is not performed by such a reinforcing rod in concrete, for other reasons than the absence of a post. The truss rod receives its stress by a suitable connection at the end of the rod and over the support of the beam. The reinforcing rod in the standard beam ends abruptly at the very point where it is due to receive an important element of strength, an element which would add enormously to the strength and safety of many a beam if it could be introduced. Of course, a reinforcing rod in a concrete beam receives its stress by increments imparted by the grip of the concrete, but these increments can only be imparted where the tendency of the concrete is to stretch. This tendency is greatest near the bottom of the beam, and when the rod is bent up to the top of the beam, it is taken out of the region where the concrete has the greatest tendency to stretch. The function of this rod as reinforcement of the bottom flange of the beam is interfered with by bending it up in this manner, as the beam is left without bottom flange reinforcement, as far as that rod is concerned, from the point of bend to the support. It is true that there is a shear or a diagonal tension in the beam, and the diagonal portion of the rod is apparently in a position to take this tension. This is just such a force as the truss rod in a queen post truss must take. Is this reinforcing rod equipped to perform this office? The beam is apt to fail in the line AB. In fact, it is apt to crack from shrinkage on this or almost any other line, and to leave the strength dependent on the reinforcing steel. Suppose such a crack should occur, the entire strength of the beam would be dependent on the grip of the short end of rod 3 to the right of the line AB. The grip of this short piece of rod is so small and precarious, considering the important duty it has to perform, that it is astounding that designers, having any care for the permanence of their structures, should consider for an instant such features of design, much less incorporate them in a building in which life and property depend on them. The third point to which attention is called is the feature of design just mentioned in connection with the bent-up rod. It concerns the anchorage of rods by the embedment of a few inches of their length in concrete. This most flagrant violation of common sense has its most conspicuous example in large engineering works, where of all places better judgment should prevail. Many retaining walls have been built and described in engineering journals, in papers before engineering societies of the highest order, and in books enjoying the greatest reputation, which have, as an essential feature, a great number of rods which cannot possibly develop their strength, and might as well be of much smaller dimensions. These rods are the vertical and horizontal rods in the counterfort of the retaining wall, 
shown at A in Figure 2. This retaining wall consists of a front curtain wall and a horizontal slab, joined at intervals by ribs or counterforts. The manifest and only function of the rib or counterfort is to tie together the curtain wall and the horizontal slab. That it is or should be of concrete is because the steel rods which it contains need protection. It is clear that failure of the retaining wall could occur by rupture through the section AB or through BC. It is also clear that apart from the cracking of the concrete of the rib, the only thing which would produce this rupture is the pulling out of the short ends of these reinforcing rods. Writers treat the triangle ABC as a beam, but there is absolutely no analogy between this triangle and a beam. Designers seem to think that these rods take the place of so-called shear rods in a beam, and that the inclined rods are equivalent to the rods in a tension flange of a beam. It is hard to understand by what process of reasoning such results can be attained. Any clear analysis leading to these conclusions would certainly be a valuable contribution to the literature on the subject. It is scarcely possible, however, that such analysis will be brought forward, for it is the apparent policy of the reinforced concrete analyst to jump into the middle of his proposition without the encumbrance of a premise. There is positively no evading the fact that this wall could fail, as stated, by rupture along either AB or BC. It can be stated just as positively that a set of rods running from the front wall to the horizontal slab and anchored into each in such a manner as would be adopted were these slabs suspended on the rods is the only rational and the only efficient design possible. This design is illustrated at B in Figure 2. Illustration Figure 2 The fourth point concerns shear in steel rods embedded in concrete. For decades, specifications for steel bridges have gravely given a unit shear to be allowed on bridge pins, and every bridge engineer knows or ought to know that if a bridge pin is properly proportioned for bending and bearing, there is no possibility of its being weak from shear. The centers of bearings cannot be brought close enough together to reduce the size of the pin to where its shear need be considered, because of the width required for bearing on the parts. Concrete is about one-thirtieth as strong as steel in bearing. There is, therefore, somewhat less than one-thirtieth of a reason for specifying any shear on steel rods embedded in concrete. The gravity of the situation is not so much the serious manner in which this unit of shear in steel is written in specifications and building codes for reinforced concrete work. It does not mean anything in specifications for steel work because it is ignored. But it is apparent when designers soberly use these absurd units and proportion shear rods accordingly. Many designers actually proportion shear rods for shear. Shear in the steel at units of 10,000 or 12,000 pounds per square inch. And the blame for this dangerous practice can be laid directly to the literature on reinforced concrete. Shear rods are given as standard features in the design of reinforced concrete beams. 
in the joint report of the committee of the various engineering societies a method for proportioning shear members is given the stress or shear per shear member is the longitudinal shear which would occur in the space from member to member no hint is given as to whether these bars are in shear or tension in fact either would be absurd and impossible without greatly overstressing some other part this is just a sample of the state of the literature on this important subject shear bars will be taken up more fully in subsequent paragraphs the fifth point concerns vertical stirrups in a beam these stirrups are conspicuous features in the designs of reinforcing concrete beams explanations of how they act are conspicuous in the literature on reinforced concrete by its total absence by stirrups are meant the so-called shear rods strung along a reinforcing rod they are usually u-shaped and looped around the rod it is common practice to count these stirrups in the shear taking the horizontal shear in a beam in a plate girder the rivets connecting the flange to the web take the horizontal shear or the increment to the flange stress compare two three-quarter inch rivets tightly driven into holes in a steel angle with a loose vertical rod three-quarters of an inch in diameter looped around a reinforcing rod in a concrete beam and a correct comparison of methods of design in steel and reinforced concrete as they are commonly practiced is obtained these stirrups can take but little hold on the reinforcing rods and this must be through the medium of the concrete and they can take but little shear some writers however hold the opinion that the stirrups are in tension and not in shear and some are bold enough to compare them with the vertical tension members of a how truss imagine a how truss with the vertical tension members looped around the bottom cord and run up to the top cord without any connection or hooked over the top cord then compare such a truss with one in which the end of the rod is upset and receives a nut and large washer bearing solidly against the cord this gives a comparison of methods of design in wood and reinforced concrete as they are commonly practiced anchorage or grip in the concrete is all that can be counted on in any event to take up the tension of these stirrups but it requires an embedment of from thirty to fifty diameters of a rod to develop its full strength take thirty to fifty diameters from the floating end of these shear members and in some cases nothing or less than nothing will be left in any case the point at which the shear member or stirrup is good for its full value is far short of the centroid of compression of the beam where it should be in most cases it will be nearer the bottom of the beam in a how truss the vertical tension members having their end connections near the bottom cord would be equivalent to these shear members the sixth point concerns the division of stress into shear members briefly stated the common method is to assume each shear member as taking the horizontal shear occurring in the space from member to member as already stated this is absurd if stirrups could take shear this method would give the shear per stirrup but even advocates of this method acknowledge that they cannot to apply the common analogy of a truss 
Each shear member would represent a tension web member in the truss, and each would have to take all the shear occurring in a section through it. If, for example, shear members were spaced half the depth of a beam apart, each would take half the shear by the common method. If shear members take vertical shear, or if they take tension, what is between the two members to take the other half of the shear? There is nothing in the beam but concrete, and the tension rod between the two shear members. If the concrete can take the shear, why use steel members? It is not conceivable that an engineer should seriously consider a tension rod in a reinforced concrete beam as carrying the shear from stirrup to stirrup. The logical deduction from the proposition that shear rods take tension is that the tension rods must take shear, and that they must take the full shear of the beam and not only a part of it. For these shear rods are looped around or attached to the tension rods, and since tension in the shear rods would logically be imparted through the medium of this attachment, there is no escaping the conclusion that a large vertical force, the shear of the beam, must pass through the tension rod. If the shear member really relieves the concrete of the shear, it must take it all. If, as would be allowable, the shear rods take but a part of the shear, leaving the concrete to take the remainder, that carried by the rods should not be divided again, as is recommended by the common method. Bulletin number 29 of the University of Illinois Experiment Station shows by numerous experiments and reiterates again and again that shear rods do not act until the beam has cracked and partly failed. This being the case, a shear rod is an illogical element of design. Any element of a structure which cannot act until failure has started is not a proper element of design. In a steel structure, a bent plate which would straighten out under a small stress and then resist final rupture would be a menace to the rigidity and stability of the structure. This is exactly analogous to shear rods which cannot act until failure has begun. When the man who tears down by criticism fails to point out the way to build up, he is a destructive critic. If under the circumstances designing with shear rods had the virtue of being the best thing to do with the steel and concrete disposed in a beam, as far as experience and logic in their present state could decide, nothing would be gained by simply criticizing this method of design. But logic and tests have shown a far simpler, more effective and more economical means of disposing of the steel in a reinforced concrete beam. In shallow beams there is little need of provision for taking shear by any other means than the concrete itself. The writer has seen a reinforced slab support a very heavy load by simple friction, for the slab was cracked close to the supports. In slabs, shear is seldom provided for in the steel reinforcement. It is only when beams begin to have a depth approximating one-tenth of the span that the shear in the concrete becomes excessive and provision is necessary in the steel reinforcement. Years ago the writer recommended that in such beams some of the rods be curved up toward the ends of the span and anchored over the support. Such reinforcement completely relieves the concrete of all shearing stress, for the stress in the rod will have a vertical component equal to the shear. The concrete will rest in the rod as a saddle, and the rod will be like the cable of a suspension span. 
the concrete should be in separate blocks with vertical joints, and still the load would be carried safely. By end anchorage is not meant an inch or two of embedment in concrete, for an iron vice would not hold a rod for its full value by such means. Neither does it mean a hook on the end of the rod, a threaded end with a bearing washer and a nut and a lock nut to hold the washer in place is about the only effective means, and it is simple and cheap. Nothing is as good for this purpose as plain round rods, for no other shape affords the same simple and effective means of end connection. In a line of beams end to end, the rods may be extended into the next beam, and there act to take the top flange tension, while at the same time finding anchorage for the principal beam stress. The simplicity of this design is shown still further by the absence of a large number of little pieces in a beam-box, as these must be held in their proper places, and as they interfere with the pouring of the concrete. It is surprising that this simple and unpatented method of design has not met with more favor, and has scarcely been used even in tests. Some time ago the writer was asked by the head of an engineering department of a college for some ideas for the students to work up for theses, and suggested that they test beams of this sort. He was met by the astounding and fatuous reply that such would not be reinforced concrete beams. They would certainly be concrete beams, and just as certainly be reinforced. Bulletin 29 of the University of Illinois Experiment Station contains a record of tests of reinforced concrete beams of this sort. They failed by the crushing of the concrete, or by failure in the steel rods, and nearly all the cracks were in the middle third of the beams, whereas beams rich in shear rods cracked principally in the end thirds that is, in the neighborhood of the shear-rods. The former failures are ideal, and are easier to provide against. A crack in a beam near the middle of the span is of little consequence, whereas one near the support is a menace to safety. The seventh point of common practice to which attention is called is the manner in which bending moments in so-called continuous beams are juggled to reduce them to what the designer would like to have them, this has come to be almost a matter of taste, and is done with as much precision or reason as geologists guess at the age of a fossil in millions of years. If a line of continuous beams be loaded uniformly, the maximum moments are negative and are over the supports. Who ever heard of a line of beams in which the reinforcement over the supports was double that at mid-spans? The end support of such a line of beams cannot be said to be fixed, but is simply supported. Hence the end beam would have a negative bending moment over next to the last support equal to that of a simple span. Who ever heard of a beam being reinforced for this? The common practice is to make a reduction in the bending moment at the middle of the span to about that of a line of continuous beams, regardless of the fact that they may not be continuous or even contiguous, and in spite of the fact that the loading of only one gives quite different results, and may give results approaching those of a simple beam. If the beams be designed as simple beams, taking the clear distance between supports as the span and not the centers of bearings or the centers of supports, and if a reasonable top reinforcement be used over these supports to prevent cracks, Every requirement of good engineering is met.
under extreme conditions such construction might be heavily stressed in the steel over the supports it might even be overstressed in this steel but what could happen not failure for the beams are capable of carrying their load individually and even if the rods over the supports were severed a thing impossible because they cannot stretch out sufficiently the beams would stand continuous beam calculations have no place whatever in designing stringers of a steel bridge though the end connections will often take a very large moment and if calculated as continuous will be bound to be strained to a very much larger moment whoever heard of a failure because of continuous beam action in the stringers of a bridge why cannot reinforced concrete engineering be placed on the same sound footing as structural steel engineering the eighth point concerns the spacing of rods in a reinforced concrete beam it is common to see rods bunched in the bottom of such a beam with no regard whatever for the ability of the concrete to grip the steel or to carry the horizontal shear incident to their stress to the upper part of the beam as an illustration of the logic and analysis applied in discussing the subject of reinforced concrete one well-known authority on the premise that the unit of adhesion to rod and of shear are equal derives a rule for the spacing of rods his reasoning is so false and his rule is so far from being correct that two-thirds would have to be added to the width of beam in order to make it correct an error of sixty-six per cent may seem trifling to some minds where reinforced concrete is considered but errors of one-tenth this amount in steel design would be cause for serious concern it is reasoning of the most elementary kind which shows that if shear and adhesion are equal the width of a reinforced concrete beam should be equal to the sum of the peripheries of all reinforcing rods gripped by the concrete the width of the beam is the measure of the shearing area above the rods taking the horizontal shear to the top of the beam and the peripheries of the rods are the measure of the gripping or adhesion area analysis which examines a beam to determine whether or not there is sufficient concrete to grip the steel and to carry the shear is about at the vanishing point in nearly all books on the subject such misleading analysis as that just cited is worse than nothing the ninth point concerns the t-beam excessively elaborate formulas are worked out for the t-beam and haphazard guesses are made as to how much of the floor slab may be considered in the compression flange if a fraction of this mental energy were directed toward a logical analysis of the shear and gripping value of the stem of the t-beam it would be found that when the stem is given its proper width little if any of the floor slab will have to be counted in the compression flange for the width of concrete which will grip the rods properly will take the compression incident to their stress the tenth point concerns elaborate theories and formulas for beams and slabs formulas are commonly given with twenty-five or thirty constants and variables to be estimated and guessed at and are based on assumptions which are inaccurate and untrue one of these assumptions is that the concrete is initially unstressed this is quite out of reason for the shrinkage of the concrete on hardening puts stress in both concrete and steel one of the coefficients of the formulas is that of the elasticity of the concrete 
no more variable property of concrete is known than its coefficient of elasticity, which may vary from one million to five million or six million. It varies with the intensity of stress, with the kind of aggregate used, with the amount of water used in mixing, and with the atmospheric condition during setting. The unknown coefficient of elasticity of concrete and the non-existent condition of no initial stress vitiate entirely formulas supported by these two props. Here again destructive criticism would be vicious if these mathematical gymnasts were giving the best or only solution which present knowledge could produce, or if the critic did not point out a substitute. The substitute is so simple of application, in such agreement with experiments, and so logical in its derivation, that it is surprising that it has not been generally adopted. The neutral axis of reinforced concrete beams under safe loads is near the middle of the depth of the beams. If in all cases it be taken at the middle of the depth of the concrete beam, and if variation of intensity of stress in the concrete be taken as uniform from this neutral axis up, the formula for the resisting moment of a reinforced concrete beam becomes extremely simple and no more complex than that for a rectangular wooden beam. The eleventh point concerns complex formulas for chimneys. It is a simple matter to find the tensile stress in that part of a plain concrete chimney between two radii on the windward side. If in this space there is inserted a rod which is capable of taking that tension at a proper unit, the safety of the chimney is assured as far as that tensile stress is concerned. Why should frightfully complex formulas be proposed which bring in the unknowable modulus of elasticity of concrete and can only be solved by stages or dependence on the calculations of someone else? The twelfth point concerns deflection calculations. As is well known, deflection does not play much of a part in the design of beams. Sometimes, however, the passing requirement of a certain floor construction is the amount of deflection under a given load. Professor Gaetano Lanza has given some data on recorded deflections of reinforced concrete beams. Footnote B. He has also worked out the theoretical deflections on various assumptions. An attempt to reconcile the observed deflections with one of several methods of calculating stresses led him to the conclusion that the observations made thus far are not sufficient to furnish the means for determining the actual distribution of the stresses, and hence for the deduction of reliable formula for the computation of the direct stresses, shearing stresses, diagonal stresses, deflections, position of the neutral axis, etc., under a given load. Professor Lanza might have gone further, and said that the observations made thus far are sufficient to show the hopelessness of deriving a formula that will predict accurately the deflection of a reinforced concrete beam. The wide variation shown by two beam tests cited by him, in which the beams were identical, is in itself proof of this. Taking the data of these tests, and working out the modulus of elasticity from the recorded deflections, as though the beams were of plain concrete, 
values are found for this modulus which are not out of agreement with the value of that variable modulus as determined by other means. Therefore, if the beams be considered as plain concrete beams, and an average value be assumed for the modulus or coefficient of elasticity, a deflection may be found by a simple calculation which is an average of that which may be expected. Here again, simple theory is better than complex, because of the ease with which it may be applied, and because it gives results which are just as reliable. The thirteenth point concerns the elastic theory as applied to a reinforced concrete arch. This theory treats a reinforced concrete arch as a spring. In order to justify its use, the arch or spring is considered as having fixed ends. The results obtained by the intricate methods of the elastic theory and the simple method of the equilibrium polygon are too nearly identical to justify the former when the arch is taken as hinged at the ends. The assumption of fixed ends in an arch is a most extravagant one, because it means that the abutments must be rigid, that is, capable of taking bending moments. Rigidity in an abutment is only affected by a large increase in bulk, whereas strength in an arch ring is greatly augmented by the addition of a few inches to its thickness. By the elastic theory, the arch ring does not appear to need as much strength as by the other method, but additional stability is needed in the abutments in order to take the bending moments. This latter feature is not dwelt on by the elastic theorists. In the ordinary arch, the criterion by which the size of abutment is gauged is the location of the line of pressure. It is difficult and expensive to obtain depth enough in the base of the abutment to keep this line within the middle third when only the thrust of the arch is considered. If, in addition to the thrust, there is a bending moment which, for many conditions of loading, further displaces the line of pressure toward the critical edge, the difficulty and expense are increased. It cannot be gainsaid that a few cubic yards of concrete added to the ring of an arch will go much further toward strengthening the arch than the same amount of concrete added to the two abutments. In reinforced concrete there are ample grounds for the contention that the carrying out of a nice theory based on nice assumptions and the exact determination of ideal stresses is of far less importance than the building of a structure which is in every way capable of performing its function. There are more than ample grounds for the contention that the ideal stresses worked out for a reinforced concrete structure are far from realization in this far from ideal material. Apart from the objection that the elastic theory, instead of showing economy by cutting down the thickness of the arch ring, would show the very opposite if fully carried out, there are objections of greater weight, objections which strike at the very foundation of the theory as applied to reinforced concrete. In the elastic theory, as in the intricate beam theory commonly used, there is the assumption of an initial unstressed condition of the materials. This is not true of a beam and is still further from the truth in the case of an arch. Besides shrinkage of the concrete, which always produces unknown initial stresses, there is a still more potent cause of initial stress, namely the settlement of the arch when the forms are removed. If the initial stresses are unknown, ideal determinations of stresses 
can have little meaning. The elastic theory stands or falls according as one is able or unable to calculate accurately the deflection of a reinforced concrete beam, and it is an impossibility to calculate this deflection even approximately. The tests cited by Professor Lanza show the utter disagreement in the matter of deflections. Of those tested, two beams, which were identical, showed results almost 100% apart. A theory grounded on such a shifting foundation does not deserve serious consideration. Professor Lanza's conclusions, quoted under the twelfth point, have special meaning and force when applied to a reinforced concrete arch. The actual distribution of the stresses cannot possibly be determined, and complex cloaks of arithmetic cannot cover this fact. The elastic theory, far from being a reliable formula, is false and misleading in the extreme. The fourteenth point refers to temperature calculations in a reinforced concrete arch. These calculations have no meaning whatever. To give the grounds for this assertion would be to reiterate much of what has been said under the subject of the elastic arch. If the unstressed shape of an arch cannot be determined because of the unknown effect of shrinkage and settlement, it is a waste of time to work out a slightly different unstressed shape due to temperature variation, and it is a further waste of time to work out the supposed stresses resulting from deflecting that arch back to its actual shape. If no other method of finding the approximate stresses in an arch existed, the elastic theory might be classed as the best available, but this is not the case. There is a method which is both simple and reliable. Accuracy is not claimed for it, and hence it is in accord with the more or less uncertain materials dealt with. Complete safety, however, is assured, for it treats the arch as a series of blocks, and the cementing of these blocks into one mass cannot weaken the arch. Reinforcement can be proportioned in the same manner as for chimneys, by finding the tension exerted to pull these blocks apart, and then providing steel to take that tension. The fifteenth point concerns steel in compression in reinforced concrete columns or beams. It is common practice, and it is recommended in the most pretentious works on the subject, to include in the strength of a concrete column slender longitudinal rods embedded in the concrete. To quote from one of these works, the compressive resistance of a hooped member exceeds the sum of the following three elements. 1. The compressive resistance of the concrete without reinforcement. 2. The compressive resistance of the longitudinal rods stressed to their elastic limit. 3. The compressive resistance which would have been produced by the imaginary longitudinals at the elastic limit of the hooping metal, the volume of the imaginary longitudinals being taken as 2.4 times that of the hooping metal. This does not stand the test, either of theory or practice. In fact, it is far from being true. Its departure from the truth is great enough and of serious enough moment to explain some of the worst accidents in the history of reinforced concrete. It is a nice theoretical conception that the steel and the concrete act together to take the compression, and that each is accommodating enough to take just as much of the load as will stress it to just the right unit. Here again, initial stress plays an important part. The shrinkage of the concrete tends to put the rods in compression. 
the load adds more compression on the slender rods and they buckle because of the lack of any adequate stiffening long before the theorist's ultimate load is reached there is no theoretical or practical consideration which would bring in the strength of the hoops after the strength of the concrete between them has been counted all the compression of a column must of necessity go through the disk of concrete between the two hoops and the longitudinal steel no additional strength in the hoops can affect the strength of this disk with a given spacing of the hoops it is true that shorter disks will have more strength but this is a matter of the spacing of the hoops and not of their sectional area as the above quotation would make it appear besides being false theoretically this method of investing phantom columns with real strength is woefully lacking in practical foundation even the assumption of reinforcing value to the longitudinal steel rods is not at all borne out in tests designers add enormously to the calculated strength of concrete columns when they insert some longitudinal rods it appears to be the rule that real columns are weakened by the very means which these designers invest with reinforcing properties whether or not it is the rule the mere fact that many tests have shown these so-called reinforced concrete columns to be weaker than similar plain concrete columns is amply sufficient to condemn the practice of assuming strength which may not exist of all parts of a building the columns are the most vital the failure of one column will in all probability carry with it many others stronger than itself whereas a weakened failing slab or beam does not put an extra load and shock on the neighboring parts of a structure in bulletin number ten of the university of illinois experiment station footnote c a plain concrete column nine by nine inches by twelve feet stood an ultimate crushing load of two thousand four pounds per square inch column two identical in size and having four five-eighths inch rods embedded in the concrete stood one thousand five hundred and fifty seven pounds per square inch so much for longitudinal rods without hoops this is not an isolated case but appears to be the rule and yet in reading the literature on the subject one would be led to believe that longitudinal steel rods in a plain concrete column add greatly to the strength of the column a paper by mr m o withy before the american society for testing materials in nineteen o nine gave the results of some tests on concrete steel and plain concrete columns the term concrete steel is used because this particular combination is not reinforced concrete one group of columns namely w one to w three ten and a half inches in diameter one hundred and two inches long and circular in shape stood an average ultimate load of two thousand six hundred pounds per square inch these columns were of plain concrete another group namely e one to e three were octagonal in shape with a short diameter twelve inches their length being one hundred and twenty inches these columns contained nine longitudinal rods five-eighths inch in diameter and one-quarter inch steel rings every foot they stood an ultimate load averaging two thousand four hundred and thirty eight pounds per square inch this is less than the column with no steel and with practically the same ratio of slenderness 
in some tests on columns made by the Department of Buildings of Minneapolis, Minnesota, footnote D. Test A was a 9 by 9 inch column, 9 feet 6 inches long, with 10 longitudinal round rods, 1 half inch in diameter, and 1 and a half inch by 3 sixteenths inch circular bands having 2 half inch rivets in the splice, spaced 4 inches apart, the circles being 7 inches in diameter. It carried an ultimate load of 130,000 pounds, which is much less than half the compressive resistance of a hooped member, worked out according to the authoritative quotation before given. Another similar column stood a little more than half that compressive resistance. Five of the seventeen tests on the concrete steel columns made at Minneapolis stood less than the plain concrete columns, so much for the longitudinal rods and for hoops which are not close enough to stiffen the rods, and yet in reading the literature on the subject any one would be led to believe that longitudinal rods and hoops add enormously to the strength of a concrete column. The sixteenth indictment against common practice is in reference to flat slabs supported on four sides. Grasshoff's formula for flat plates has no application to reinforced concrete slabs, because it is derived for a material strong in all directions and equally stressed. The strength of concrete in tension is almost nil, at least it should be so considered. Poisson's ratio, so prominent in Grasshoff's formula, has no meaning whatever in steel reinforcement for a slab, because each rod must take tension only, and instead of a material equally stressed in all directions, there are generally sets of independent rods in only two directions. In a solution of the problem given by a high English authority, the slab is assumed to have a bending moment of equal intensity along its diagonal. It is quite absurd to assume an intensity of bending clear into the corner of a slab, and on the very support equal to that at its centre. A method published by the writer some years ago has not been challenged. By this method strips are taken across the slab, and the moment in them is found, considering the limitations of the several strips in deflection imposed by those running at right angles therewith. This method shows, as tests demonstrate, that when the slab is oblong, reinforcement in the long direction rapidly diminishes in usefulness. When the ratio is one to one and a half, reinforcement in the long direction is needless, since that in the short direction is required to take its full amount. In this way, French and other regulations give false results and fail to work out. If the writer is wrong in any or all of the foregoing points, it should be easy to disprove his assertions. It would be better to do this than to ridicule or ignore them, and it would be even better than to issue reports signed by authorities which commend the practices herein condemned. Footnotes Footnote A, presented at the meeting of March 16, 1910. Footnote B, Stresses in Reinforced Concrete Beams, Journal, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, mid-October 1909. Footnote C, page 14, column 8. Footnote D, Engineering News, December 3, 1908. End of Selection
Section 27 of The Handy Cyclopedia of Things Worth Knowing. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Larissa Jaworski, Brisbane, Australia, March 2007. The Handy Cyclopedia of Things Worth Knowing by Joseph Trinans, published in 1911. Section 27. Principal American cities, with population of over 100,000 in 1910. The population for 1900 is given by way of comparison. New York, New York. Population in 1910, 4,766,883. In 1900, 3,437,202. Chicago, Illinois. Population in 1910, Two million one hundred eighty five thousand two hundred eighty three in nineteen hundred one million six hundred ninety eight thousand five hundred seventy two Philadelphia, Pennsylvania population in nineteen ten one million five hundred forty nine thousand and eight in nineteen hundred one million two hundred ninety three thousand six hundred ninety seven St. Louis, Missouri Population in 1910, 687,289. Population in 1910, 568,863. In Population in 1910, 533,905. In Population in 1910, 423,715. In 1900, 352,387. San Francisco, California. Population in 1910, 416,912. In 1900, 342,782. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Population in 1910, 373,857. In 1900, 246,070. New Orleans, Louisiana. 
Population in 1910,379,104 Minneapolis, Minnesota. Population in 1910, 301,408. In 1900, 202,718. Jersey City, New Jersey. Population in 1910, 267,779. In 1900, 206,433. Kansas City, Missouri. Population in 1910, 248,331 in 1900, 163,752. Seattle, Washington. Population in 1910, 237,194 in 1900, 80,671. Indianapolis, Indiana. Population in 1910, 233,650 In 1900, 169,164. Providence, Rhode Island. Population in 1910, 224,326. In 1900, 175,597. Providence, Rhode Island. Population in 1910, 224,326. In 1900, 175,597. Louisville, Kentucky. Population in 1910, 223,928. In 1900, 204,731. Rochester, New York. Population in 1910, 218,149. In 1900, 162,608. St. Paul, Minnesota. Population in 1910, 214,744. In 1900, 163,065. Denver, Colorado. Population in 1910, 213,381. In 1900, 133,859. Portland, Oregon. Population in 1910, 207,214. In 1900, 90,426. Columbus, Ohio. Population in 1910, 181,548. In 1900, 125,560. Toledo, Ohio. Population in 1910, 168,497. In 1900, 131,822. Atlanta, Georgia. Population in 1910, 154,839. In 1900, 89,672. Oakland, California. Population in 1910, 150,174. In 1900, 66,960.
Worcester, Massachusetts. Population in 1910. 145,986. In 1900, 118,421. Syracuse, New York. Population in 1910, 137,249. In 1900, 108,374. One hundred and thirty two thousand six hundred and eighty three in nineteen hundred thirty eight thousand four hundred and fifteen Memphis, Tennessee Population in nineteen ten one hundred and thirty one thousand one hundred and five in nineteen hundred one hundred and two thousand three hundred and twenty Scranton, Pennsylvania Population in nineteen ten one hundred and 29,867 in 1900 102,026 Richmond, Virginia population in 1910 127,628 in 1900 85,050 Patterson, New Jersey population in 1910 125,600 in 1900, 105,171. Omaha, Nebraska. Population in 1910, Dayton, Ohio. Population in 1910, 110,364 in 1900 80,865 Lowell, Massachusetts population in 1910 106,294 in 1900 94,969 Cambridge, Massachusetts population in 1910 104,839 in 1900 91,886 Spokane, Washington Population in 1910, 104,402 in one hundred thousand two hundred and fifty three in nineteen hundred ninety four thousand one hundred fifty one state flowers the following list includes all the state flowers commonly accepted or officially adopted alabama goldenrod 
Arizona, Sequoia Cactus, Arkansas, Apple Blossom, California, Poppy, Colorado, Columbine, Delaware, Peach Blossom, Georgia, Cherokee Rose, Idaho, Syringa, Illinois, Violet, Iowa, Wild Rose, Kansas, Sunflower, Louisiana, Magnolia, Maine, Pinecone, Michigan, Apple Blossom, Minnesota, Moccasin, Mississippi, Magnolia, Montana, Bitterroot, Missouri, Goldenrod, Nebraska, Goldenrod, New Jersey, Sugar Maple Tree, New York, Rose, North Dakota, Goldenrod, Oklahoma, Mistletoe, Oregon, Oregon Grape, Rhode Island, Violet, Texas, Blue Bonnet, Utah, Seago Lily, Vermont, Red Clover, Washington, Rhododendron. Height of Noted Structures Following is the height in feet of some noted monuments and structures. Amiens Cathedral, 383 feet. Bunker Hill Monument, 221 feet. Capitol, Washington, 288 feet. City Hall, Philadelphia, 535 feet. Cologne Cathedral, 512 feet. Eiffel Tower, 984 feet. Florence Cathedral, 387 feet. Fribourg Cathedral, 386 feet. Masonic Temple, Chicago, 354 feet. Metropolitan Building, New York, 700 feet. Milan Cathedral, 360 feet. The Great Pyramid, 451 feet. Rouen Cathedral, 464 feet. St. Paul's, London, 404 feet. St. Peter's, Rome, 433 feet. The Singer Building, New York, 612 feet. Strasbourg Cathedral, 465 feet. St. Stephen's, Vienna, 470 feet. Ward Building, Chicago, 394 feet. Washington Monument, 556 feet. The Maximum Age of Trees Palm, 250 years. Elm, 355 years. Cypress, 388 years. Ivy, 448 years. Maple, 516 years. Larch, 576 years. Lemon, 640 years. Plain, 720 years. Cedar, 800 years. Chestnut, 860 years. Walnut, 900 years. Lime, 1,076 years. Spruce, 1,200 years. Oak, 1,600 years. Olive, 2,000 years. Yew, 2,880 years. Baobab, 5,100 years. And Dragon, 5,900 years. Eucalyptus, or Australian gum tree, sometimes grows 24 feet in three months. Bamboo, 2 feet in 24 hours. Dictionary of Aeronautics The new science of aeronautics has given rise to many new worlds. 
among them some of awkward derivation, and even those properly formed and worthy of preservation in the language are often erroneously used. The following compact lexicon is therefore both interesting and instructive. Aeroplane A generic term applied in common use to all classes of sustaining surfaces, strictly applicable only to flat surfaces. Adjusting surfaces Commonly a comparatively small surface, usually at the end of a wing tip, used to adjust lateral balance, preferably restricted to surfaces capable of variable adjustment, but not of movement by controlling devices. See stabiliser and wing tip, and compare aileron, advancing edge, the front edge of a sustaining or other surface. Advancing surface, a surface that precedes another through the air, as in a double monoplane. Error curve, a proposed substitute for aeroplane. Aerodrome, a substitute proposed by Langley for aeroplane, strictly applicable to a course rather than to a vehicle. Aileron, a small, hinged or separated wing tip or surface, capable of independent manipulation for the purpose of maintaining lateral balance. Aviation, dynamic flight by means of heavier-than-air mechanisms. Aviator, the operator or pilot of a heavier-than-air machine. Aerofoil, term used to indicate lifting surface. Angle of incidence, the angle which a line drawn from the leading to trailing edge of the plane makes with the horizontal trailing angle between the tangent to the trailing edge of the plane and the cord or a line drawn from the leading edge to the trailing edge. Arc, any portion of a circle or other curve. Aspect, the top or plan view of an aeroplane surface. Automatic stability, applied to lateral or longitudinal stability, maintained by the action of suitable elements on mechanisms independent of any controlled exercised by the operator. There is a tendency to restrict the term of such stability secured by an automatic manipulation of controlling devices, rather than to systems in which balance is maintained by the use of dihedral arrangements. Biplane an aeroplane with two superposed main surfaces. Balance, to maintain equilibrium by hand or automatic movement of balancing surfaces, as opposed to equilibrium maintained by stabilising. See stabiliser. Body, the centre part of an aeroplane or other aerial vehicle, in which the motor, fuel tanks, passenger accommodation, etc. are placed. Camber. The camber of the ribs is the amount of curvature which is imparted to them in the same way that a motor car spring or a road has a camber or curvature. Chassis That part of the main framework of a monoplane to which the main planes and tailplanes are fitted and which contains the engine and aviator's seat. Centre of pressure Really a line of pressure along the underside of a wing or aeroplane surface, on either side of which the pressures are equal. Centre of gravity. The centre of weight, about which the vehicle balances in all directions. Cord. A straight line drawn between the ends of the arc of a circle or other curve. 
Dirigible. Steerable or navigable applied to balloons. Derrick. A tower in which a falling weight is dropped in starting an aeroplane. Diagonal. A diagonal brace or stay in a framework. Dihedral. Set of wings. Pairs inclined at an upward angle to each other. Elevator. A principal supplementary surface, usually of a miniature form of the main planes, used for purpose of altering the vertical direction of machine. Gap. The distance between two main planes in a biplane. Gliding. Flying down a slant of air without power. Gyroscopic effect. The property of any rotating mass whereby it tends to maintain its plane of rotation against disturbing forces. Gauchissement or warping. Applied to the main planes and produces the same ultimate effect as the use of ailerons. Hangar. A shed for housing balloons or aeroplanes, generally the latter. Horsepower. A rate of work equivalent to the lifting of 33,000 foot-pound a minute. Head resistance. The resistance of the surface to movement through the air, closely proportionate to its projected area. Heavier than air. Applied to dynamic flying machines weighing more than the air they displace. Horizontal rudder. A horizontally placed rudder for steering in vertical directions. Lift, the sustaining effect expressed in units of weight of an aeroplane or wing surface. Monoplane, an aeroplane with one or more main surfaces in the same horizontal plane. Main plane, usually the largest or lowest supporting surface of a multi-surfaced aeroplane. Mast, a spar or strut used for the attachment of wire or other stays to stiffen the wings or other parts of a structure. Main spars. Lateral spars upon which the main planes are built. Main landing wheels. In an alighting gear, the wheels that take the chief shock in landing. Ornithopter. A dynamic flying machine of the heavier-than-air type, in which sustension is provided by the effect of reciprocating wing surfaces. Pylon, a tower to mark the course in aerial racing contests. Ribs, supports for the fabric, made of ash or spruce, and bent to the correct curves. Rudder, one or more steering planes are invariably fitted to practical machines to control the direction of flight. Superposed planes. Arrangement of one plane over the other, as in the Wright, Voisin and Farman machines. Supplementary planes or surfaces. Additional surfaces which are used for stabilisation. Stabiliser. Any surface for automatically maintaining lateral or longitudinal balance. Struts. Fixtures used in biplane construction to maintain an equal distance between two planes. Skids. Long skates on which the machine can land safely.
span the distance from tip to tip of the main planes in a transverse direction of that flight. Soaring flight. The flight of certain large birds without wing flapping. Its solution and imitation constitute one of the problems of aerial navigation. Sustaining surface. Any surface placed in a horizontal or approximately horizontal position, primarily for the purpose of affording sustension. Triplane. An aeroplane with three main surfaces. Webs. Small blocks of wood placed between the ribs which act as distance pieces. Wind warping. A system of maintaining lateral balance by differential twisting of wing tips in such manner as to increase the sustension on one side and decrease it on the other. New York Tribune. College colours. Amherst, purple and white. Beloit, old gold. Bodin, white. Brown, brown and white. Columbia, light blue and white. Cornell, carnelian and white. Dartmouth, green. Harvard, crimson. Indiana, crimson and cream. Iowa, scarlet and black. Iowa State, cardinal and gold. Johns Hopkins, black and old gold. Lake Forest, red and black. Leland Stanford, cardinal. Northwestern, royal purple. Oberlin, crimson and gold. Princeton, orange and black. Purdue, old gold and black. University of Chicago, maroon. University of Illinois, orange and navy blue. University of Michigan, maize and blue. University of Minnesota, old gold and maroon. University of Notre Dame, gold and blue. University of Pennsylvania, red and blue. University of Rochester, dandelion yellow. University of Wisconsin, cardinal. Vassar, rose and grey. Williams, royal purple. And Yale, blue. The Claims of Osteopathy Strictly construing the claims of osteopathic doctors, it is an anti-medicine system of practice for the cure of every disease to which the human body is liable. Dr. Andrew T. Still, who claims to have made the discoveries that led to the establishment of the School of Osteopathy, asserts that all diseases and lesions are the result of the luxation, dislocation, or breakage of some bone or bones. This, however, is not now maintained to any great extent by his followers. Osteopathists, though, do generally claim that all diseases arise from some maladjustment of the bones of the human body, and that treatment, therefore, must be to secure the normal adjustment of the bones and ligaments that form the skeleton. They claim that a dislocation is not always the result of external violence. It may be caused by the ulceration of bones, the elongation of ligaments, or excessive muscular action. The constriction of an important artery or vein, which may be caused by a very slightly displaced bone, an indurated muscle or other organ, 
may produce an excess of blood in one part of the body, thereby causing a deficiency in some other part. A dislocated member will generally show alteration in the form of the joint and axis of the limb, loss of power and proper motion, increased length or shortening of the limb, prominence at one point and depression at another, greatly impaired circulation and pain due to the obstruction of the nerve force in the parts involved. The osteopathist claims that pain and disease arise mainly from some maladjustment in some part of the body, and that a return to good health involves treatment for the normal adjustment of the skeleton. He asserts, though any laxation may only be partial, it may cause pressure at some point upon a blood vessel, or a nerve, of which the patient may be unconscious, and thus be a barrier to the restoration of good health. Osteopathy asserts that trying to heal the body of an ailment caused by a dislocated member, be it bone, ligament or nerve, by which abnormal pressure is maintained upon a blood vessel or a nerve, would be like trying to operate a machine with an important cog out of gear. To cure it involves the reduction of a dislocation, the breaking up of adhesions, and the arousing of the innervated organ or organs partially or wholly failing in the performance of function. End of section 27When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Selections from General Instructions for the Guidance of Post Office Inspectors in the Dominion of Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Selections from General Instructions for the Guidance of Post Office Inspectors in the Dominion of Canada by Alexander Campbell. Section 1. General Instructions 1. You are required personally to superintend the performance of the routine work of your office and see that it is properly done. 2. This routine work should be suitably and fairly apportioned amongst your clerks, each clerk under your superintendence being responsible for the duty assigned to him. You will, after fair warning, report to the Postmaster General any clerk who fails correctly and efficiently to perform this duty. 3. Carefully superintend the working of the Department in all its branches within the limits of your division. As, however, it is important that the operations of the Department should be carried on under one uniform plan throughout the Dominion, do not make any alterations in the system of doing work without the permission first obtained of the Postmaster General. 4. Endeavour to instil into all persons connected with the department in your division the importance of a harmonious working together for the good of the service, and of each in his own sphere, performing the duties assigned to him in an intelligent and thorough manner. 5. All letters received on official business should be carefully and promptly attended to. 6. 
All matters referred to you from the department at Ottawa should be disposed of with the least possible delay. 7. Provision should be made for the performance of the ordinary routine work of your office when you are absent, under the superintendence of your senior clerk. 8. No portion of your work should be allowed to fall into arrear. If it should do so, however, from circumstances beyond your control, you will at once report the fact to the Postmaster General. 9. See that the time bills and mail transfer receipts are properly examined and filed away every day. A separate pigeonhole should be provided for each set of time bills and transfer receipts, the pigeonholes being arranged and labeled in alphabetical order. 10. When fines should, in your opinion, be imposed upon railway mail clerks, clerks in city offices, and other offices in the employ of the department, full particulars of each case should be communicated to the Postmaster General, and his authority for the imposition of the fine obtained. 11. Make once in every three months a regular and thorough inspection of all the details of account and general business in each city post office in your division, without any prearranged date or notice of the time at which such inspection will be made. The inspection should, however, take place on the first of a month, so that the accountant may be able to verify from your report the entries in the accounts of the postmaster for the month preceding. In making these inspections, you must verify the stamp account of the office, personally count the stock on hand, and see that it agrees with the amount stated in the postmaster's stamp account, made up to the last day of the month, to which account you should attach your signature. Satisfy yourself that all other items of revenue, such as postage on unpaid matter, or insufficiently paid matter and on newspapers, also rent of boxes and drawers, etc., are duly brought to account. Certify to the number of both boxes and drawers rented at the time of your inspection. Investigate the state of the money order and savings bank business, and see that the regulations and instructions are closely adhered to. Inquire into the conduct and efficiency of each person employed. See that all work of the letter carrier's branch is promptly and accurately performed. That all the carriers are supplied with and wear uniforms. That an account is kept by the postmaster of the cost thereof and that the outlay incurred does not exceed the amount allowed by the Postmaster-General. Forward to the Postmaster-General the results of your inspection as promptly as possible, giving clear and full information on the several points inquired into. 12. See that all errors and irregularities are reported to you by the Postmaster or Railway Mail Clerk by whom observed, and that prompt steps are taken for their correction. Irregularities of whatever kind should be promptly inquired into and corrected. If overlooked, they have always a tendency to increase. 13. Investigate thoroughly all cases of complaint. Obtain a clear statement of the charges made, and of the facts which can be proved in support of these charges, and from these facts draw your conclusion. In cases where the evidence is conflicting, the characters and antecedents of the parties concerned may probably be important elements for consideration. 14. In making investigations, bear in mind that any person who has been detected in one dishonest act may probably have been guilty of other dishonest acts, and that your inquiry should therefore cover not only the particular case under investigation, but other irregular or fraudulent proceedings, which it is possible may have been committed by the party suspected. 
This point should be particularly remembered in regard to offices transacting money order and savings bank business. 15. You have authority for the purpose of any official inquiry or investigation it may be your duty to make, to apply to any judge of the Superior or Exchequer Court of Canada, or of the Superior Court of the Province of Quebec, or of any of the superior courts of either of the provinces, or to any judge or stipendiary magistrate in and for the territories, for an order that a subpoena may be issued from the court or magistrate, commanding any person therein named to appear before you at the time and place mentioned in the subpoena, and then and there to testify to all matters within his knowledge, and if so required to produce any document or thing he may have in his possession relative to such inquiry or investigation and any witness may be summoned from any part of Canada, within or without the ordinary jurisdiction of the court, judge, or magistrate issuing the subpoena, any reasonable travelling expenses being tendered to any witness so subpoenaed at the time of such service, and any person thus summoned who may neglect or refuse to appear, or refuse to give evidence or to produce the papers demanded of him, may, by order of the court, judge, or magistrate who issued the subpoena, be taken into custody and imprisoned in the common jail of the locality, as for contempt of court, for a period not exceeding fourteen days. 16. You have also authority to examine any person on oath or affirmation on any matter pertinent to any investigation you make, and such oath or affirmation may be administered by you to any person you may so desire to examine. 17. You and any officer under you, having the rank of assistant post office inspector, have authority to require any postmaster or assistant postmaster in any post offices, mail contractor, or other person in the employment or service of, or undertaking to perform any duty or work for the post office department, to make and sign an oath or declaration in the following form, or to a like effect. I insert the name of the person and the capacity in which he is employed in or by the post office, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear, or declare, if the person is one entitled to declare instead of taking an oath in civil cases, that I will faithfully perform all the duties required of me by my employment in the service of the post office, and will abstain from everything forbidden by the laws for the establishment and government of the post office department in Canada, so help me God. 18. When a formal investigation is necessary, always give due notice to the complainant or complainants, and the party or parties complained against, of the time and place at which the investigation will be held. 19. In your reports to the Postmaster General of the result of investigation, state whether the inquiry was made by personal or by correspondence. State also clearly in the proper order all the facts bearing on the case and the conclusions which these facts appear to justify. 20. In reporting on cases of a confidential character, in which it is not desirable that the facts should be made public, mark the word confidential, both on the report and on the cover in which it is transmitted. 21. In all reports in which a previous report is referred to, state in addition to the number and date of the report referred to its general purport. 22. In all reports, post offices should be called by their official names, and not the name by which they may be known in the locality. This rule applies especially to the maritime provinces. 23. It is desirable that you should make yourself acquainted, as far as may be practicable, 
with the general character and financial standing of each postmaster in your division who has charge of money order or savings bank duties and in any case where you have reason for suspecting the possibility of irregular practices or a disposition to withhold even for short periods post office monies a confidential report should be made to the postmaster general in order that a close supervision may be kept by the superintendent on the returns and remittances received from such postmasters. 24. In cases of doubt, always ask for instructions from the postmaster general, by letter, if time permits, if not, by telegraph. 25. When absolutely necessary, make use of the telegraph, compressing your message into as few words as are consistent with clearness of meaning. Do not, however, use the telegraph in cases where a letter will answer all the purposes required. 26. Observe in all manners connected with the department as strict an economy as is consistent with the efficient performance of the service. Do not in any case recommend additional expenditure unless the circumstances appear fully to justify it. 27. No outlay, whether for alteration in a mail service or for repairs, improvements, or fittings, must be incurred without the specific authority first obtained of the Postmaster General. In every case, application for this authority must be accompanied by a full description of the work to be done and an estimate of the probable expenditure involved. 28. No person must be employed, even in a temporary capacity, without the sanction of the Postmaster General previously obtained. 29. Furnish full particulars of any changes, especially of distribution, to the inspectors of other divisions which may be affected in any way by these changes, and cordially cooperate with them in the consideration and carrying out of any improvements which may generally benefit the service. 30. Make yourself thoroughly conversant with all acts of the Dominion Parliament relating in any way to the Post Office Service, and with all regulations relating to the Post Office Department, as well as with all details connected with its operation. 31. You have authority, when you find it necessary, to suspend a postmaster, clerk, or any other employee in your division. All the circumstances, however, should at once be reported to the Postmaster General. 32. When it is noticed that postage stamps attached to letters or other postal matter frequently fall off, or if it should be found that the stamps are insufficiently gummed or badly perforated, the fact should be reported to the Postmaster General the name of the office at which the posting took place being given. 33. In closing a post office, or in transferring a post office to a newly appointed postmaster, always see that the accounts are made up to the day of closing or transfer, and that the balance due thereon is paid and deposited in the bank to the credit of the postmaster general. The assumption by an incoming postmaster of a balance due by his predecessor is objectionable. The amount due from the outgoing postmaster should in all cases be deposited as above, to the credit of the Postmaster General. 34. Except in very special cases, the opening and closing of offices should take effect on the first day of each month. 35. In the case of the transfer of a money order office, the transfer receipt should be sent to the superintendent of the money order branch at Ottawa by the first mail after the transfer takes effect. 36. Immoral publications and other articles, the transmission of which through the mail are prohibited, and which are sent to you by the railway mail clerks in your division, should be at once forwarded to the Postmaster General. 
37. All forms, books, stationery, etc., required for your office, must be applied for by requisition to the Postmaster General in accordance with the instructions contained in the catalogue of articles in stock in the printing and supply branch of the Department, a copy of which has been furnished to you. 38. If any of the regulations laid down in these instructions cannot be carried out in your division, you will make a confidential report to the Postmaster General, stating the reasons why this cannot be done. Section 2. Arrangement of Papers 1. All papers and correspondence referring to the same case should be kept together. 2. No letters or papers should be put away until the matter to which they refer is fully disposed of. 3. Separate pigeonholes should be provided for all papers and letters according to their classification, so that when required they can be readily found. 4. The following classification is recommended. For papers not finally disposed of. 1. Papers in reference to applications for new post offices. 2. Papers in reference to postmasters' bonds for execution. 3. Papers in reference to applications for alterations in mail routes. 4. Papers in reference to railway mail service. 5. Papers in reference to advertisement of mail contracts. 6. Papers in reference to execution of mail contracts. 7. Papers in reference to arrears due from postmasters and ex-postmasters. 8. Papers in reference to cases of supposed loss of or abstractions from letters. 9. Papers in reference to distribution. 10. Papers in reference to matters requiring personal inquiry. 11. Letters from Secretary awaiting answers. 12. Letters from Postmasters, Contractors, and the Public awaiting answers. For papers finally disposed of. 1. Mail contracts in force, alphabetically arranged. 2. Mail contracts terminated, alphabetically arranged. 3. Postmasters' bonds in force, alphabetically arranged. 4. Postmasters' bonds terminated, alphabetically arranged. 5. Letters from Secretary arranged according to number. 6. Letters from Post Office Department not numbered. 7. Letters from Post Office Inspectors. 8. Letters from Postmasters, Contractors, and the Public alphabetically arranged, there being a separate pigeonhole for each letter of the alphabet. 9. Papers in reference to cases of actual losses of or abstractions from letters. 10. Papers in reference to cases of supposed loss of or abstractions, in which the inquiry instituted shows that no actual loss or abstraction occurred. 11. Papers in reference to accounts included in monthly requisitions. 12. Papers in reference to arrears due from postmasters. 13. Papers in reference to railway mail service. 14. Papers in reference to distribution. Section 3. Books and Records 1. The books to be kept are as follows. 1. Book for press copies of reports to the Postmaster General. 2. Book for press copies of such other letters, etc., as it may be necessary to copy. 3. 
Record of letters and references from the secretary. 4. Record of applications for lost letters, etc. 5. Record of actual losses of letters and abstractions of articles of value from letters. 6. Journal of travel and proceedings. Forms bound up. 7. Conduct return book. Press copies. 8. Order book for instructions to railway mail clerks, in which should be entered the address of each clerk. 9. Book for recording number of miles travelled by railway mail clerks. 10. Record of errors made by railway mail clerks, as shown by labels on packages which they have made up, and which should be forwarded to you by the mail clerks or postmasters by whom opened, as also of other errors made by the railway mail clerks reported to you. 11. Record of mail contracts. 12. Record of postmasters' bonds. 13. Record of dates of expiration of contract. 14. Variation of expenditure book. 15. Record of transfer of offices. 16. Salary pay list book. 17. Contractor's pay book. 18. Book for the record of requisitions to the Postmaster General for payment of travelling charges and all other official expenses, with the exception of salaries and mail services. 19. Arrears book. 20. Register of employees attached to your office, including railway mail clerks in your division or under your superintendents. In the book, a page should be devoted to each employee, in which should be recorded name, date and place of birth, religion, class, salary, date of promotion, increase of salary, transfer, suspension, cases in which the employee has received special commendation or censure, date of resignation or removal, or any other particular of which it is desirable a memorandum should be kept. 21. Cash book for entry of all monies received on a P.O. account, with manner of disposal thereof. 22. Money order check book. 23. Passbook in which to record all registered letters dispatched. 24. Order book with margin to be used in all cases when an order is given for any article required for official use. 25. Telegraph books with margin on which should be recorded copies of all telegraphs sent on official business. 26. Corresponding Offices Book, showing name of office with which each office in your division exchanges direct mails. 27. Book for recording changes in distribution. 28. Book for daily entry of time bills on ordinary mail routes. 29. Record of new offices established, of old offices closed, and changes in names of offices. 30. Book for requisitions for printing and stationery. Blank forms bound up. 31. Guard book for copies of notices inviting tenders for contracts. 32. Guard book for department orders and circulars. 33. Guard book for time bills of railways, etc. 2. It is very necessary that entries of all transactions should be promptly made in the books provided for their record. The keeping of memoranda on pieces of paper, or trusting to memory in such matters, is very objectionable. 3. All printing and binding required both by your own office and city, or other offices, 
must be done on requisition to the department at Ottawa. 4. Further, all stationery required, both by your own city or other offices, must be obtained by requisition in the proper form to the Postmaster-General, the number of the articles, as shown by the official catalogue, being in all cases given. Section 6. New Post Offices 1. In each report on an application for a new post office, describe the locality in which it is proposed to establish the new office, giving name of the township, number of lot and concession, stating whether front or rear of the concession, and county in which situated. In places where land is not so divided, give such particulars as may serve to indicate the exact position. State further the number of churches, schools, mills, stores, houses, or other buildings in the immediate neighborhood, the character of the surrounding land, whether well settled, and the estimated number of families that the office applied for would accommodate, its distance from all neighboring offices, its estimated postal revenue, the mode and frequency of the service proposed, the estimated annual cost, whether any previous application for a post office in the same locality has already been reported on, and such other information as may bear on the matter. 2. With each report on an application for a new post office should be sent a sketch or tracing from the map of your division, showing as nearly as can be ascertained the position of the proposed office and mail route, and the offices and mail routes already in operation in its neighborhood. Section 7. Mail Arrangements 1. The principal object of all mail arrangements is to ensure the transit of the letters and papers to destination with the utmost possible dispatch. 2. The main routes throughout the provinces should connect with each other as closely as it is possible. 3. The branch routes should be so arranged as to form as close a connection as possible with the main lines. 4. Through bags should be exchanged by all offices between which pass a large number of letters and papers, including travelling post offices on different routes. 5. As a general rule, an office has a large number of registered letters for another office with which it does not exchange a direct mail. The registered letters may be enclosed in a sealed registered packet, addressed to the office for which the letters are intended. The address of the packet, however, should in all cases be entered in the letter bill with which it is dispatched. When a packet is sent as above, it should be accompanied by a letter bill containing at foot an acknowledgment for registered letters. This acknowledgment should be filled up by the receiving office and returned to the dispatching office by the first post. 6. Where large numbers of registered letters pass between two offices, it is desirable that bags secured with the lead seal should be used. 7. An inspector should always be on the watch to ascertain what improvements can be made in the postal arrangements in his division. It should be his aim to anticipate the wants of the general public, and to combine, as far as practicable, efficiency of service with economy of expenditure. Section 8. Mail Service 1. It is very essential that a strict supervision should be maintained over the performance of the mail service, that all delays and irregularities should be promptly checked, and when necessary, fines imposed and enforced. 2. On all the important routes there should be suitable time bills, 
in which should be entered the hours of arrival and departure at each office, the names of the couriers, and the number of the mails received and delivered. 3. These time-bills should be carefully checked and filed away, the check-clerk affixing his initials to each bill. 4. You should be ready at all times to receive suggestions for improvements in the mail service, and if desirable, submit them for the consideration of the postmaster-general. 5. Leather bags should, as a general rule, be used on stage routes. On the outlying routes, where the mails are exposed to the weather, waterproof canvas bags should be used. Section 9. Establishment of new routes, or alterations in routes already in operation. 1. In making reports on proposed new mail routes, or alterations of existing routes, state clearly advantages to be obtained, additional cost per annum to be incurred, present revenue of the offices to be served, increased revenue which it is estimated would result from proposed additional mail facilities. Give tables also of the present and proposed routes, showing offices served and intermediate distances. State also dates on which contracts which it is proposed to discontinue would terminate, provided previous notice were not given by the Postmaster-General. 2. With each report send a sketch or tracing from the Post Office map of your division, showing all the offices affected by the proposed arrangements, denoting the lines of existing routes which it is recommended should be discontinued in blue, and the new routes which it is recommended should be established in red. 3. All changes in mail service should, except in very special cases, take effect on the first day of each month. Section 12. Railway Mail Service 1. This is a very important branch of the Postal Service, and will require your constant supervision. 2. A distribution book should be supplied the mail clerks on each road, which book should be corrected at least once in each month or oftener should circumstances render it necessary. 3. Each mail clerk in your division should be examined frequently with the object of ascertaining if he has a proper knowledge of the distribution and of the changes which have taken place in the distribution on the railway on which he is employed. 4. On every railway route there should be a time bill which should pass from one end of the line to the other, and in which should be entered the particulars of all bags received and delivered by the mail clerks. 5. You are not authorized to issue passes for travelling in a postal car, except to a railway mail clerk actually going on duty. 6. No person, excepting railway mail clerks on duty, the conductor of the train in the ordinary course of his duty, and the post office inspectors, should be allowed access to the postal cars whilst en route with the mails. 7. You should make yourself acquainted with the conduct of the railway mail clerks, when off as well as on duty, and report to the postmaster-general any railway mail clerk who, to your knowledge, is at any time under the influence of liquor or otherwise misconducting himself. 8. Compensation is made to railway companies for mail service performed in a postal car, at the rate of six cents per mile actually travelled by mixed trains, and eight cents per mile for quick passenger trains. Compensation is also made for the conveyance of bags in charge of the company's servants at the rate of from two to four cents per mile actually travelled by the trains performing such service. 9. When service by postal cars is necessary, 
the companies are bound to furnish travelling post-offices suitably fitted up, and to see that they are properly heated, lighted, and cleaned, and supplied with water. 10. All plans for the fitting up of these travelling post-offices should, previous to being carried out, be submitted for the approval of the Postmaster-General. 11. No promise of remuneration for services performed in connection with the Postal Service should be made to any person in the employ of a railway company. For all such services, compensation is made to the company in the regular allowance paid to them. 12. Canvas bags, as a general rule, should be used for the railway mail service. The necessary supplies will be furnished on application to the Postmaster General. Section 14. Travelling. 1. Visit and inspect each money order and savings bank office in your division, and make a report thereon to the Postmaster General on the printed forms, as often as occasion serves, but at least once every year. 2. Visit and inspect every other office in your division as often as circumstances permit. 3. Do not, unless with good and sufficient reason, pass a post office without calling and inspecting it. 4. Keep before you a memorandum of cases requiring personal investigation, so that in travelling you may be able to attend to as many of these cases as may be in the direction of your journey. 5. In travelling, ascertain, as far as you are able, if the service on the several routes over which you pass is in every respect satisfactorily performed, and make memoranda in your pocket memorandum book of any irregularities which you may observe, or of any changes which you think desirable. 6. Note and take down particulars of any locality at which it is likely a post office may be required, so that when applied for you may be able to report thereon. 7. In visiting a post office, the following points should engage your attention. 1. Is the office provided with a sign, a letter-box, pigeonholes for letters and papers for delivery and dispatch, other necessary fittings, forms and other necessary equipment. 2. Is it conveniently situated and provided with proper accommodation for the public? 3. Are the postmaster and his assistants duly sworn, and do they understand their duties? 4. Has the postmaster proper stamps and material for postmarking letters, etc., and obliterating the stamps thereon? 5. Are the letter bills properly postmarked and filed? 6. Are the registered letters and mail key kept in a safe place? 7. Are the letters and papers for delivery properly postmarked? Are they all intended for the delivery of the office? Are they sorted into the proper boxes? Are there any which should have been sent to the dead letter office? 8. Are the newspapers for delivery all sorted in their proper pigeonholes? 9. Are all letters and papers posted for despatch as well as for delivery at the office properly prepaid by stamp? 10. Are the entries in the book of mails sent and received, and the registered letter books properly made? 11. Are the instructions and circulars received from the department properly filed? 12. Are the notices sent for exhibition to the public properly posted? 13. Is there a notice posted in the lobby indicating the office hours and the times at which mails are closed and received? 14. Is the postmaster supplied with postage stamps sufficient to meet the requirements of the public? 15. Are the mails regularly received and dispatched, 
and the provisions of the contracts under which the office is supplied properly carried out. 8. In the event of an office being a money-order office, ascertain 1. If the entries in all the books are properly made. 2. Whether the cash book at offices where a cash book is kept is made up to date, and whether the date of the deposit receipts agree with the date for which the credit is taken therefore. 3. Whether the postmaster has in hand the balance due on money order account. 4. Whether all the numbers of the money orders taken from the order book are properly accounted for. 9. You should take every opportunity of ascertaining and noting down the character and standing of the several parties employed in the postal service. The information thus obtained may be of value. 10. You should also take every opportunity of collecting accurate information in regard to the settlement of the country, the position of the post offices, roads and distances, and with this object you should carry a map of the section of country through which you pass, and mark thereon as much as you can of the above information. Section 17. Conclusion. It is very important that each inspector should make himself thoroughly conversant with the foregoing regulations, and it will be the duty of the chief inspector, when visiting the several divisions, to ascertain whether these regulations are properly observed, and to report to the Postmaster General such deviations as may come under his notice. Alexander Campbell, Postmaster General, Ottawa, 1st August, 1879. End of Selections from General Instructions for the Guidance of Post Office Inspectors in the Dominion of Canada By Alexander Campbell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. To find out more or see how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pi to the first thousand decimal places. 
one three four two seven five seven seven eight nine six zero nine one seven three six three seven one seven eight seven two one four six eight four four zero nine zero one two two four nine five three four three zero one four six five four nine five eight five three seven one zero five zero seven nine two two seven nine six eight nine two five eight nine two three five four two zero one nine nine five six one one two one two nine zero two one nine six zero eight six four zero three four four one eight one five nine eight one three six two nine seven seven four seven seven one three zero nine nine six zero five one eight seven zero seven two one one three four nine 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 eight three seven two nine seven eight zero four nine nine five one zero five nine seven three one seven three two eight one six zero nine six three one eight five nine five zero two four four five nine four five five three four six nine zero eight three zero two six four two five two two three zero eight two five three three four four six eight five zero three five two six one nine three one one eight eight one seven one zero one zero 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 three one three seven eight three eight seven five two eight eight six five eight seven five three three zero eight three eight one four two zero six one seven one seven seven six six nine one four seven three zero three five nine eight two five three four nine zero four two eight seven five five four six eight seven three one one five nine five six two eight six three eight eight two three five three seven eight seven five nine three seven five one nine five seven seven eight one eight five seven seven eight zero five three two one seven one two two six eight zero six six one three zero zero one nine two seven eight seven six six one 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 nine five nine zero nine two one six four two zero one nine eight nine end of pi to the first thousand decimal places